This episode of What the Fintech is sponsored by Mambu. Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this episode is Michelle Brewer, General Manager for Benelux at Mambu. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you, Alex. Really happy to be here. It's fantastic to have you on, and we've got a fantastic discussion coming up all about cloud banking, outsourcing. We're going to be talking about SaaS, uh, adoption, challenges, barriers, regulation, strategies, all of it coming up later in the show. But first, as always, we're going to chat news and particularly news with interesting numbers in them. Uh, both I and Michelle have gone out through the week and found some news stories with interesting numbers to talk about. As regular listeners will know, it's traditional for our guests to go first. Uh, so Michelle, what story uh, do you want to talk about? Um, yeah, so the story, Alex, that I would like to talk about is that it took one year uh, for Google to drop the Plex banking project. I'm sure you read it. I read it mm-hmm. on your uh, on the FinTech Futures uh, articles in between one of them. And that quite struck me that um, they actually, so it took a year. In my opinion, it was an interesting project. So the current account proposition of Google, where they were actually not going to charge any any monthly fees, no off overdrafts and no minimum balance uh, requirements. And what they were trying to do, uh, as far as I understand, is that they were going to collaborate with different banks in order to offer these services, uh, Citibank being one of them, actually. And I actually do understand that it was quite compelling. So I believe they had like 11 banks that that wanted to work with them. Mm-hmm. And and the main pitch that they provided, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about that, but the main pitch that they provided was that, that banks actually have lagging technology and um, that their current vendors are, are way behind. And lastly, also that more and more customers are, are thinking that banks are becoming irrelevant. And that was actually the pitch, I believe, that Google pitched to these financial institutions with the counter argument that Google, of course, has the latest technology, has a great uh, network of merchants, and um, also, of course, therefore has the data. Mm. Um, that, from in my perspective, did sound like an interesting proposition. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting about this is um, there's some really interesting numbers in here, not least the one year. It's a very short amount of time from announcing to dropping. And also, like you mentioned, 11 bank and credit union partners who'd be offering Plex to, to customers. Uh, according to Wall Street Journal, Citigroup had, just City this is, had 400,000 people on the waiting list for, for Plex, which is you know, not an insignificant amount by any stretch. And if you want to extrapolate that across 11 other banks there, or 10 other banks, then that's, you know, that's significant numbers. But yeah. you know, there, there's sort of it, the rumor mill going around is that, you know, Google, which is seeking partnerships or deeper partnerships with a lot of financial institutions, may or may not have received some pressure from potential bank partners about launching what is ostensibly going to be a competitor when other banks are. You know, you think about, for example, um, JP Morgan Chase launching in the UK and its own having its own challenger retail brand in the US as well. Goldman Sachs with Marcus. There's lots of banks out there launching their own challenger brand and that Google Plex may or may not have been a significant competitor to those. And so Google had decided to be, I think the quote in the story is that um, the new, the guy behind Plex, uh, Caesar Sengupta, left Google in April and was replaced by uh, former PayPal man, Bill Reddy, 
who the Wall Street Journal uh, says adopted a less disruptive strategy when it came to the Google's uh, relationship with the banking sector. So I think that might have played something into it uh, with maybe Google deciding to step back towards more of an infrastructure play rather than an outright disruption play. Yeah, that sounds interesting indeed. And also interesting that the change in executive comes with a different vision. I think you often see that. I'm curious Mm -hmm. if that uh, had any additional twist to it, but I do completely understand that. Yeah, also from a Mambu perspective, but we'll touch upon that later, I guess, in our conversation. But what I also do understand is that Google in this situation, I think they, they realize it might be better to sell into banks rather than trying to compete with them. Because another question mark, and I'm curious what you think about that is, like, despite it would be an interesting proposition, I would be curious in how far this Googleplex proposition would really enable those banks that partner with Googleplex to leverage the, let's say, the additional customer acquisition into new financial products. Because mm-hmm. I think in the end, um, I'm not sure if this, if, these, if the Googleplex account would be a main account for their customers. I rather think it would be either a secondary or maybe even less than that uh, in terms of priorities for their customers. What do you think? No, I agree. I think that there's, um, especially with challenger brands, we talk a lot about the fact that they are they become secondary accounts. And for banks, for major banks as well, that cross-sell ability to move new customers from what are, you know, current accounts don't make money to accounts that do savings, um, investments, those kinds of things. That's the kind of cross-sell that banks are looking for. So I think perhaps having a partnership with Google to launch a new challenger or a sort of challenger anyway, where Google sort of sits on top of your own services. And for one of a better word, it sounds a little bit like Stockholm syndrome where, you know, you get the privilege of having a Google thing attached to you. And in exchange, Google gets a, a large chunk of your existing customer base to, to use its own service. So I think that there are questions to be raised there from a strategic point of view from the FIs. But again, I think also from the Google perspective as well, if that's going to, you know, draw any kind of ire from, from ostensibly people they, or institutions that they want to be working with deeper when it comes to things like, especially things like uh, like cloud infrastructure, which is obviously something Google is trying to get into more as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I also think, at least what I've read, is that in terms of Google's strategic proposition also being cloud, right? And on the cloud space, uh, selling into financial institutions also isn't easy. Uh, I think AWS and Microsoft still are ahead of Google uh, in that sense. So maybe they also just want to pivot and have more focus, being more an infrastructure player rather than offering banking services directly to the to the customers. Yeah, I think that could be exactly it. But we'll shift on to my story for this episode, which is uh, based around the number or the figure rather of uh, 80%, which is um, the amount of revenue increasing year on year for UK FinTech Curve, despite the fact that it reported an operating loss of 37.9 million in its annual results for 2020. Now, Curve is something of a an interesting case study in UK FinTech, I think. For those who don't know, card aggregation service that allows people to swap what card they use to pay for different services and also has a travel back in time feature where you can swap a payment from one card to another if you accidentally paid on your credit card when you meant to pay on your debit card, for example. Um, but it's also had pretty significant losses. Its operating losses were 6.5 million in 2018 and then 28.5 million between 2018 and 2019 and now obviously 37.9 million. However, it's like I said, its revenue between 
between 18 and 19, its revenue was up 86%, and now it's up 80%. It also had a gross margin improvement uh, driven by growing premium subscription revenues, which had obviously higher margins than card transactions. The firm itself attributes half of its operating expenses to personnel costs after growing its workforce from 126 people to 226. And it said that it has its business has proved resilient in, in Curve's own words through the pandemic and exhibited strong growth. Now, card transactions contribute about two thirds of its revenues, premium subscriptions the other third, while its platform products are sort of a marginal. Now, it's an interesting one because I feel that uh, it's a case study for the effort and the time and the money that needs to go into creating a, a successful fintech these days. And I think people can look at those results and say, oh, you know, they're big numbers in terms of losses. But when you look at the other end, you know, with revenue rising year on year as well, it shows the, the difficulty in balancing margins and expenses, especially when you're a fintech that is still having to, you know, spend a fair amount to, to break into a market in terms of like marketing and costs and growth. And it's just, I think, a really good example of, of like the both the highs and lows that can come from operating in the fintech sector. But I mean, Michelle, what, what are your thoughts on this? Surely there, you've seen in the market a lot of great fintechs that are still struggling with uh, profitability issues. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Next to Benelux, I also uh, cover the Baltic region. And in the Baltics, um, what you see there is a lot of new fintechs popping up due to the licensing. And one thing I can just say upfront, like even though many, many entrepreneurs are trying to start new financial uh, institutions or new financial services, fintechs, it isn't easy, right? Like if it would be so easy, then it's actually quite logical that it's not easy and that, that these institutions are heavily regulated, etc. But this specific topic here, what we see here is it's around like cost a tremendous amount of time, tremendous amount of investment in order to get this somehow, in, in some cases, even disruptive uh, projects up and running. I think with, with the Curve situation, how I understand it, it's also really revolving around investing in products and extending their current offering. I believe that in, in the coming years, they um, are looking to really extend it into things like crypto, SME banking, consumer finance. I even think wealth and insurance is on their uh, to-do list or wish list. I don't know. I don't know how to position that. <laughs> but um, yeah, being an app store for money and and having plans to really add different financial services to their spectrum of services, I believe what they are focusing on. And uh, actually, as a matter of fact, I believe they recently launched um, their own buy now pay later proposition called CurveFlex. Did, did you hear about that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so from that perspective, it makes sense that they are heavily investing. So from that perspective, having a loss is not a, how do you say, a surprise. Mm. It just needs to be a solid business plan and forecast that in some time in the future, it will pay itself back, right? <laughs> yeah, I get that's That's always the hope. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Also, actually, also, there's another fun fact or not a fun fact, actually. It's a very serious point. I read about Curve and Wirecard. Like mm -hmm. I wasn't aware, but so but Curve actually used Wirecard as their payment processor. Yeah. When, when things went uh, south, let's say with Wirecard, within 60 hours they managed to actually turn this whole thing around. Um, I was quite impressed. Negotiating with partners, setting up new uh, the new contracts in place, launching, switching from the one into the next system. Mm -hmm. I was really impressed by that.
Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview style section where, as everyone knows, we'll drill the discussion down into a specific industry topic or sector. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, we're going to be talking about SaaS. Uh, but first, I'm just going to give Michelle a chance to talk about Mambu and his role at the firm uh, just before we kick in. So take it away, Michelle. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, so my name is Michel indeed. I am uh, the general manager for the Benelux and Baltic region within Mambu. What does that mean? It means that I am a go-to-market responsible for this region. And Mambu really has a approach where we want to get as close as possible to our customer. So this means that we have general managers in the specific regions, really understanding the market, uh, understanding the challenges that our customers face, and therefore also as good as possible are able to come to really help them with their needs. So Mambu is uh, actually the leading cloud-native software as a service core banking platform, which is quite a mouthful. <laughs> and, and what we do is we enable something that we have coined uh, and we call it composable banking. And composable banking is an approach for financial institutions to offer their financial services by uh, integrating best-of-breed solutions into one ecosystem. And what does that mean? So what we believe that is in, in that in this day and age, there are different third parties specialized in what they do, right? So rather than being or trying to be a jack of all trades, uh, in this day and age, you're able to integrate different best of breed solution providers mm -hmm. into one ecosystem. And therefore you have synergy benefits. And so again, rather than being a jack of all trades, but a master of none, Mambu decided to be at least a master of one. And we and that one thing that we do well, what we believe we do well is core banking. Great. Well, um, I'm gonna, it's traditional actually really for these ones where, where I run the Q and A that I asked the biggest question up front, really, really set the scene. So I'm gonna ask you, Michelle, um, because we're talking about SaaS and software as a service, you know, from your position, uh, either both at Mambu and also from your position in general, where is the financial services sector when it comes to, to SaaS adoption when you consider, you know, as someone who, who started out in journalism reporting on cloud back in 2014, that um, it's been around for a fair while now? Yeah, yeah, indeed. So as you actually, a good point, I think. So cloud and SaaS are really um, strongly related to each other, of course. In terms of cloud, what you see is that many banks and financial institutions are now making that leap into moving to the cloud. Not all of them are there yet, but many of them are really, that's high on their agenda, let's say. So, so that we something that we really come across uh, at Mambu. And as you also pointed out, SaaS goes hand in hand with that. So what I see in terms of where we stand with SaaS, I think it really depends on what specific element within the architecture of a bank uh, we are referring to because there are different components offered as a SaaS solution. But if we then specifically look at, at core banking, we are really seeing a shift today. So we see a lot of banks really now opening up their eyes, realizing that they need to become digital. I think COVID also is uh, accelerating uh, that process. But what we see is that many of these financial institutions are now really looking towards how can they become more digital and SaaS is really a good solution for that. So we are not completely at the beginning because as you say, we are here already for quite a while, but the real change is starting to happen now. That's how I see it. Great. I used to speak to banks 
um, a few years ago in places like Middle East and North Africa, where there'd be a lot of concerns about cloud uh, and software as a service and platform as a service and things like that around sort of, you know, where data was being stored, jurisdictional stuff, regulatory stuff. Um, but also for the firms that are looking at cloud solutions and are thinking, oh, maybe not just yet, what concerns are you seeing in the market? Is it around that data play or is it, or is it something else as well? Yeah, I think it's I think it's two things. It depends on the country. So if the regulator is more progressive and more familiar with cloud, you will see that for the financial institutions also becomes less of a challenge. Uh, but there are still regulators that are quite strict. And I think it also always to do, and that's the second point, is the unknown, right? So if you not completely know or are aware uh, of like how specifically uh, cloud works, what the implications are, etc., then it's seen and perceived as a risk. And once it's perceived as a risk, you'll not likely be moving into that, that direction very quickly. So it's still a partially, in some countries, it's still really about educating the market, uh, really even helping financial institutions, going together with them to the regulator to really explain how we are solving or mitigating the risks that they see and helping them understand why cloud is a good solution and why it is safe and secure. But the other thing in terms of the challenge that I do see as well within financial institutions and related to SaaS is that many, well, not many, but there are banks that are innovating within their own bubble. And what do I mean by that is if you try to innovate based on the, all the information that you have at hand, you are missing out on some great opportunities. And that also means that if you are not completely, for instance, are you if you are very long already working with a specific solution, already like very familiar with that, but have never really witnessed or uh, have conversations with other things that are out there in the market, you might not innovate in the best way possible. So I think it's always really important that financial institutions there keep an open mind and continuously talk to the market, understand what's happening in the market, because the market is changing at a very fast pace. Mm -hmm. I think that's also one of the challenges that financial institutions are facing, keeping up with that, that pace of change. Sure. I think another, another challenge, really, especially for firms that are maybe Greenfield, maybe Neobanks, maybe even a bank that's trying to transition very quickly digitally, is that time to market and time to value in particular. Um, so... What, what strategies can, can banks and fintechs use when they're deploying either, you know, uh, larger cloud platform-based things or indeed just software as a service-based apps? You know, what strategies can they use to ensure that they work from the press of a button? Yeah, no, very good question. Uh, thanks for that, Alex. I fully agree. Time to market is a, is a key challenge or a key element where a lot of greenfield players, but also banks, once they want to transform, are focusing on. And... Actually, the message that I always convey to them is that our SaaS solution helps them with, with a couple of main things. One of them is faster time to market, and I'll elaborate on that in a moment. But next to that, also reducing your cost, reducing your risk, scalability, and also improving your customer experience. Those are really five main lenses that we, that we normally talk about that we also really quantify in terms of how can we really make this uh, tangible for our customers. But then towards time to market and what can financial institutions really do to ensure that really works from the start. I think the beauty of software as a service 
And if we're really talking about pure software as a service, it means that, that the solution is there, it's ready available. In the case of Mambu, all of our customers run on the same version of Mambu. There is not one custom version for the one customer and another custom version for the other customer. No, a true SaaS solution, all customers are running on the same version. And what does that mean? That what I really recommend financial institutions to do before they sign a contract is really focus on doing a proof of concept. Because the beauty with a software as a service solution is that you can get access to a sandbox environment and can really get your hands dirty before committing to a multiple year contract. So instead of making a decision based on a promise, you can now make a decision based on data, which is a big difference. And next to that, if you then focus on how software as a service can also enable them, I think it's more an approach, an approach in terms of first starting with an MVP and then building and iterating based upon that, rather than going for a open heart surgery transformation or a waterfall approach. You can rather go for really applying an MVP approach. I think that also really reduces your risk and increases your time to market. Great. There's another thing that I, I kind of want to turn this around slightly because typically firms that both deploy cloud-based systems and also firms that sell and offer cloud-based technology often rely on high margin rates and recurring revenue from subscriptions and things. So from a Mambu perspective, as a firm that you know provides, uh, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, subscription-based cloud services as part of the deals that you do, how did the pandemic in particular challenge this as, as belts tightened at financial institutions? Or indeed, did belts tighten at all? Or did you still see an interest in business? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, Mambo indeed offers its solution based on a subscription fee. And we are cloud native. Yeah, did the belts tighten? So I think here it really depends on what type of software as a service solution you are offering to which type of customers. If you look at the financial institutions in particular and the effect of COVID, what we have seen is that COVID actually has accelerated the need for digitalization. Uh, and therefore, banks are now really looking to move to solutions such as SaaS core banking solutions to really become more digital, being able to become more flexible, therefore be able to serve the needs of their customers better. So actually, from that perspective, we've seen an increase in the number of engagements with financial institutions throughout COVID. In the beginning, like any industry, there, has, there, was a, there was a short moment where everything came to a standstill, but at that moment, more or less the whole world stood still. Mm -hmm. But quickly after that, um, banks realized that they really needed to digitize, and, and, they, and that's when they started focusing on solutions such as Mambu, software as a service for banking. Great. And also, I guess... In terms of, of things standing still, there are a fair few high-profile banking transformations going on right now, core banking or otherwise, which have gone dark really in terms of progress. There's, I'm not going to be naming names and calling people out on the podcast, but um, <laughs> you know there are some that have been hailed as major multi, you know, major deals for certain uh, software vendors and major banks that since have you know we've not heard a peep from them. Uh, so from your experience at Mambu and elsewhere, you know, what stumbling blocks can occur in, in an otherwise rosy rainbow, um, rainbow showered deployment of, of a new system like cloud and SaaS? And, and when you encounter them, how do you overcome them? Yeah, that's, that's also a really good question. I think here, the main thing is most of those high profile transformations that you are referring to 
are actually open heart surgeries, or at least I compare them to open heart surgeries. So very crucial project with high risk. Uh, and in these cases, actually often also long projects where often in the end, once you realize the project, the KPIs or the outcomes or the results are obsolete because the market continued to change while the project was in full force. I think what's important here is, is a different mindset towards transformation. Uh, also, again, given that there are now software as a service solutions out there in the market that offer and enable you to have a more lean MVP approach, as I mentioned before. And it's something that maybe not for vegetarian people, but if you eat an elephant and also in general, many, not many people will eat an elephant, but let's make the, let's make the comparisons. Mm. If you eat an elephant, you won't eat it as a whole. You, you would do it slice by slice or let's make it more friendly. If you eat, eat a cake, you eat it piece by piece and not try to eat the full thing in one go. At least most people won't. I think the same is with transformation. And what I would like to mention or call it is, fractional transformation and what i mean with a fractional transformation is that instead of going for the open heart surgery or the full cake at one go you transform slice by slice uh, piece by piece and if you have a software as a service solution where you for instance start with one product line and you transform that first at one product line and based on launching that product line you learn the full end-to-end uh, life cycle of your product, how it works, you take your learnings, you iterate, and you launch another product line or another country, uh, et cetera. And in that way, you can continuously improve or rather renovate your architecture, uh, making one more comparisons. It's like when you have a house, and I'm, you have a house, Alex, and if you want to change the, the paint in one room, I'm sure you're not going to rebuild your whole house to change the paint in that one room. You would rather just paint that one room. And that's the philosophy that yeah, I would like to link to fractional transformation. So really implementing this, the real like FinTech way of thinking rather than the, the full cake way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's uh, very important. And, and that then comes with also transformation strategy in terms of dual core strategy. Uh, I can go into much more depth, but I think I'll leave it by here. Yeah. Great. I mean, I, I love the, I love the house analogy. Unfortunately I rent in London. <laughs> so I think, uh, I, I would probably compare my living arrangement to something like a, you know, a 30 year old COBOL system where if you try not allowed to paint the walls or do anything to the house, whatever <laughs> in case uh, you lose your entire deposit. So Very nice. that'd be the thing for me. Nice one. Yeah. No, then for sure you don't want to rebuild your house. That's going to be even bigger problems. <laughs> well, now it's time for part three, and you know what's coming up. It's the FinTech Jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, a buzzword, a trend, uh, a company, uh, concepts or anything else in the fintech industry that our guest has seen or heard enough of in uh, the conference circuit will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already in there an extended sentence or alternatively uh, if it's already in there it, and it needs to be released because we through some error of judgment we've chucked it in the jail without uh, any real reason so michelle what buzzword or trendy topic do you want banished or freed from our, our fintech jail this week 
Yeah, Alex, so before I, I share which word, uh, like I see that your jail is, is quite packed and um, I would is, actually yeah. like to, uh, sorry? It certainly is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, right? So actually in that sense, what I would like to do is I would set one of those buzzwords free because I actually believe that that specific buzzword faced an unfair trial. <laughs> okay. And, and so the buzzword that I'm really talking about in this in this case is uh, ecosystem. Ecosystem. And now, I, ecosystem, I remember you, you, you said to me before we came on that uh, that I, I didn't sound convinced when we put this in the jail. So I think we're going to have to put we're going to have to put some sort of dream like sound effect for a little flashback for everyone listening for, to what I yeah. said back then. Um, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, but, I was but, listening. Uh, I was listening to that. Yeah. Well, yeah, go, go ahead. Uh, make, make your case. No, okay, great, thanks. No, indeed, I was listening to season two, episode three, I believe. Um, yes, that's right. Where, where ecosystem was put into the jail and uh, with the reason that companies should focus on themselves and actually disagree with that because I actually believe that tapping into an ecosystem is, is crucial for synergy benefits and therefore also enhanced success. Actually, taking Googleplex as an example, the, the new executive there actually mentioned that he rather, rather focuses on building a, a banking and payment ecosystem than competing against banks, uh, which really just, I think, by itself already proves that ecosystem is a key word. But other than that, like modern financial services uh, or providers, they, they strive to, to be customer-centric. And one of the key things to enable that is by applying or tapping into that ecosystem. Because as mentioned previously uh, in this podcast today, is that you have these best of breed third parties that are specialized in these different components, right? And by integrating those different components into one solution, that solution is gonna be way better, specifically now that we all have APIs and integration and not that challenging anymore. Um, it's gonna be way better than when you try to reinvent the wheel yourself. Actually be talking about Google, like if I wanna travel, like I'm based in Amsterdam, but if I wanna travel to, I don't know, let's say uh, Vilnius, Lithuania, uh, or London, UK, like I'm not going to try and re to reinvent Google Maps. I will just make use of Google Maps because it's going to make my life so much more easy. Mm. And that's why, like I would say, ecosystem should be really uh, bailed out or actually just really put yeah you know, set free. That's maybe even better. Yeah. Okay. I think you've made a very persuasive argument there. And thinking thinking back, and hopefully we'll put the dream sequence in about um, the idea that we put it in there because. Bank, a firm should focus on themselves. Usually, we get what we get with a lot of these buzzwords in the jail is we get the argument that things should be done as a default. So, what what would you say if someone said turned around and said, "Yeah, well, ecosystems are all well and good, but like, shouldn't that be the default at this point? You know, do we still need to make a big deal out of ecosystems? What would you say to that?" Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I fully agree that it should be a default. However. It's certainly not the default. And just based on all the conversations that I have in the market where it's still quite an eye-opener or at least where banks are trying to strive uh, and become or let's say tap into the ecosystem approach, we are not there yet. So therefore, I believe it's still really important to keep that, this word out in the open and not put it behind bars yet. Maybe potentially in the future, but for sure not at this moment. What I do agree, maybe slightly deviating from the topic, is that there are words or buzzwords that are used in incorrect ways. Like for instance, banking as a service is also really becoming a, a hot topic. Mm -hmm. um, many uh, banks, but also entrepreneurs tapping into banking as a service. However, banking as a service is really 
becoming like this word that has so many different meanings. And what I would like to suggest there, and it's a little bit out of the box, is that the, the FinTech Future Police actually uh, goes and, and checks the people that use these words just to make sure that it's used in the correct way. Would that be possible? <laughs> uh, I, uh, well, I mean, uh, you've given me a great uh, great way of arguing for more budget from the from our editor-in-chief. But uh, <laughs> I think we've quite, we've quite progressed to police yet, but maybe that'll be a season three thing. We'll, uh, we'll think about it. The FinTech cops, I don't know. Um, <laughs> But no, I think you've made I think you've made it a great point, Michelle, and I think that um, we we can set ecosystem free. Uh, Wonderful for the time being uh, can be released uh, on, on parole. Maybe, like you said, we'll have to check in with it in the future. But I think we can release ecosystems from the fintech jail. Wonderful, thank you. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for for this episode. It flew by. Uh, thanks to Michelle for joining me. Before we sign off, though, uh, do you have any socials or, or websites you want to plug? Yeah, for sure. Always open to connect. So please uh, reach out to me either via mambo.com or LinkedIn. Yeah, please. Excellent. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at ADHamilton91 uh, and on LinkedIn just by searching my name. For those listening, we have someone from Mambo on the podcast today. And by the time this comes out, we should have a report co-created with Mambu about financial inclusion in financial services out at the end of October. So please go to our website and check that out to download it. Uh, our website, in case you didn't know, is www.fintechfutures.com. And you can find Fintech Futures on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures and on LinkedIn just by searching for the same term, Fintech Futures, and looking for our recognizable logo with the two f's if you like this podcast and our other episodes and i hope you do then please subscribe on apple podcasts spotify soundcloud or your podcasting service of choice and as always we really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review posting on your socials about us or recommending us to a friend in a pub or cafe or library or banking office of your choice thanks very much for all your support we'll see you soon for another episode of what the fintech but until then Goodbye.